Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we explore ideas around mental health, equality and social justice. I'm Thea Joshi, and on the podcast we chat to people who are working for equality in mental health. So this month I had the chance to chat to Steve Gilbert, OBE. He was Vice Chair for the Independent Mental Health Act Review and led the work around improving outcomes for Black, African and Caribbean communities. Steve shared a bit about his own experience with bipolar disorder and experiencing the Mental Health Act firsthand. And we also discussed the weathering effect of racism on mental health, working from an anti-racist perspective, and the way the pandemic has shaped our understanding of racial inequalities. So we dive straight in with this one, discussing Steve's many roles. Hope you enjoy. How do you like to refer to yourself? Um, the honest answer is I'm not sure um that question of you know what is your role how do you like to be described defined doesn't get any easier um (laughs) if I'm being honest you know if we go prior June 2020 I was using the title of serious mental illness living experience consultant a bit of a mouthful Um, But there was a logic behind it. Um, And the logic was that uh, a diagnosis of bipolar disorder is categorized as a serious mental illness. That's not to say that other diagnoses aren't severe or serious in in how they affect people, but there is a, there's almost an inherent um, dangerousness and and kind of seriousness to a diagnosis like um, bipolar disorder both in terms of the highs um, and the lows. I think I think a title, part, partly it's what you own as a person. Um, and I never, I, you know, I never liked the term expert by experience, you know, expert by experience of what, eating Doritos, Harry <laughs> Road, you know, what, what are you talking about here? Um, and especially when sat in a room with people that, you know, have got, you know, quite uh, imposing titles you know they're a doctor or something or they're a consultant or something is really quite tricky and the the kind of the reason for kind of being quite specific um around you know the serious kind of element of of illness is that you know it's great that the area of mental health has got most people contributing to it but it's such a wide field you know at this end you know we're talking about prioritizing and promoting good mental well-being um, and good mental health then we're talking about you know a person um missing a day's work here or there um then we're talking about you know someone that needs to go on for example antidepressant or perhaps needs to join a peer support group those are all their own distinct things but they're very very different to living with something like bipolar disorder which requires you know daily um management um and even when you do that and you do everything right it is a case of when will i be ill again and, and how quickly can we catch it so that's kind of where the that title came and that's it too and then i kind of used that from uh 2016 really through to uh the early part of 2020 and then you know i was kind of doing more on my own so i kind of set up my consultancy which was starting to kind of find its feet. Um, and I guess my work had always had um, a race element to it. 
not just by virtue of the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm biracial, um, but actually the work I've been involved in. So the first piece of work I was involved in was a piece of work called Food Your Voices, and this is back in 2014. And this was, you know, specifically about the experiences of young um, Black African Caribbean men um, and trying to understand what their experience of, of, of mental health care is and why they're more likely to come in through a criminal justice route as opposed to a purely health and, and all of the things associated with that. So race had always been there, but I'd come at work much more from a kind of a mental health space um, and just for, for multiple reasons and, and um, you know, being um, you know, self-employed, it's quite difficult to exist in a health-based space. Um, but I kind of go back to the idea of the titles. There isn't really a framework for people who are trying to work independently. Um, and even when you look at some of the national organizations, the way in which they want to engage with people with lived experience, but not just lived experience of mental illness, um, you know, a really strong skill set is really limiting. And it's not just limiting in terms of your ability to affect change, it's limiting on how much they're willing to pay you. And that in and of itself is a whole other um, issue. Yeah, a lot of conversations going on at the moment um, around that and how we genuinely um, have a high regard for lived experience and and recognize it as a critical a critical voice around the table I guess and how that is reflected in in remuneration and things like that so we were talking earlier on about the work you've been doing over the last few years uh, what with Covid and the pandemic and within anti-racism so could you tell us a little bit more about that? Those of us that know how health inequality really presents knew instantly that like COVID was here and we could have a really good guess at who was going to affect disproportionately. We 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 knew we've been here before, we've looked at the data, we know. So we, you know, there were those of us who work in and around kind of health inequality more, more widely, but certainly around where race and ethnicity are concerned, we weren't surprised by the fact that you know there was a disproportionate number of deaths that were occurring from people you know who were you know black south, south asian um and, and you know to use a phrase which we don't like but is quite helpful in this respect non-white what was interesting was the news at the time and this was you know mainstream media they were the ones reporting on this now again anyone that's been around health inequalities long enough knows that we have a really hard time trying to get on a mainstream agenda. Prior to COVID, even when mental health and, and kind of health inequalities more generally were talked about, they were always talked about in a really specific frame. The part of that frame was around not just race and ethnicity, but it was around um, issues of income. So are we talking about low income or poverty? Are we talking about educational standards? Um, are we talking about illicit drug use? Are we talking about um, there being an association to kind of criminal behavior? That was kind of the framing. COVID kind of changed all of that in a way because what you had were people from across uh, the hospital workforce, including people at consultant level, you know, top earners, um, highly educated, but they were 
black or they were Asian, and they were dying of COVID. So the arguments around income level, poverty, education, illicit drug use, all those things, they were no longer valid. And there was a more, more of a question going, well, hold on a minute, this is happening to these people at a disproportionate rate. And it's not happening to their white colleagues at the same rate. So what's going on there? Is there some, you know, is COVID affecting people differently based on genetics? Is there, you know, and again, we didn't know, we didn't have any information on this at the time. Or is it something more systematic around the experiences of Black, you know, Southeast Asian in particular, immigrant population working in the NHS? And then, of course, George Floyd made. But I think that affected people on multiple levels. Um, there was something very distressing and very visual around what we saw, but no one was surprised. It, it, it was just, oh, you've caught this on camera. And we know that, be it you're in the United States, in the UK, or across the world, people lose their lives because they are different. And it happens all the time. Yeah. What we wanted to do was we really wanted to make sure that this wasn't just viewed as an issue that was in the US. So I did a bit of digging and I looked and, and was really searching to find where had Black Lives Matters um, protests taken place. And they were global. And when you start to look around the world, you're starting to see that this inequality was being represented in different ways. So part of what the globe was experiencing as a whole was this trauma of seeing this man killed. But also, a lot of it wasn't to do with George Floyd in particular. A lot of it was to do with, you're all now listening, and you need to listen to our experience. Well. You need to listen to the facts that this isn't a one-off. This is not just some tragedy that, you know, uh, happened out of nowhere. This is happening across the world. And worse than that, it is systematic. So there's all these different levels to it. And, and you know, as someone that describes himself as biracial, the world sees me as black. Um, very funny stories around, you know, people not believing they've got, got a white mother. Um, and again, you know, difference between the US and the UK, cops have guns over there. Over here, we've got tasers. And the, you know, there are, if you look at the, the statistics and the data around the use of tasers and deaths, yeah. again, disproportionate around black populations. When you start to look at what's going on in the mental health act system, again, the data is shocking. And we should never, is the you know, a real thing for us all to understand. I think we become desensitized. And one of the things we can de become desensitized to is around death rates, for example. Yeah. That could be death rates in uh, custody, police custody. That could be death rates in hospitals. That could be death rates in prisons. That could be death rates due to maternal care. Whatever it is, that should never be the measure of how well a system is doing. Because for every death, well, how many near misses? But more so than that, and, and you know, this is where you know the mental health act and, and, and you know the systematic um, discrimination that takes place there. 
what is equally as upsetting as people losing their life is you look at the the especially as you go through the severity of, of all you know um the the degree of being um in a secure unit you know then you start to look at well who's physically on those wards some of those wards are pretty much exclusively black people and we are talking years of life yeah effectively imprisoned yeah and as you go up that that, that security level yeah some have committed horrendous crimes i'm not disputing that you can get into questions around what failings happened that that could have averted that as we start to come down and you start to look at those that have not committed any crime and you start to think about years of life in a hospital taken away from everything you know and there's a long-term impact on that it absolutely happens to people that are white. It happens to people of all ethnicities, but it's happening at a greater rate for people who are black, black Caribbean in particular. That, that, that's just beyond impossible to sit there and comprehend. So that so the death of George Floyd, you know, hit all of us in different ways. For me, it, it, in particular, I think the term anti-racism, which is not a new term, even though I'd worked in the space for, for many years, it was a time that I hadn't been using. It wasn't part of our vocabulary, but actually it just made sense because I, you know, had been sat there for at this point, you know, several odd years, constantly saying to people, this is wrong. It's not just wrong because I'm saying it's wrong. The data tells us. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and, and you know, and, and enter into a conversation where, we're saying black people are you know, more prone to be mentally ill because of something genetic. I'm not going to sit here and say, uh, you know, there's more criminality in black communities. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, they want less out of life. Absolute rubbish. And, and for me, that term anti-racism really, it, it just gave me something I hadn't had before, which was, right, it is, no, it is not right that you will sit there any of us sit there and go, well, you know, I'm not part of this equation because I'm not racist. Well, okay, but what are you doing to actually change things? And that's where then I started to, by the way, this is all the same question you asked at the beginning <laughs> around the title. That's when I started to use the term uh, anti-racism consultants. Um, now, I don't know. Um, because none of those two terms really seemed to work over the course of, say, a month. Certain times I'm sat in a room and, and yeah, I do feel like I'm using, you know, really there thinking about the interception between my illness and my skills and my understanding of, you know, of how our mental health system works. Other times, you know, I'm absolutely there, you know, talking about anti-racism, guiding organizations through how they tackle this. Other days, it's a combination of all of these things. I just wonder if you, you know, could you tell us a little bit, you've touched already about um, your own experience with bipolar, but I wonder if you'd be happy to tell us a little bit more about your own story um, and perhaps how you feel that maybe racism impacted your mental health. 
I think the question around what role does racism play, what role does racism play in kind of my life and my experience of mental illness? It's a question that, depending on who's asking, depends on whether or not I actually want to answer it or not. And I'm completely happy to answer it um, because I, I know where you're coming from with it. Part of the, part of the challenge of that is, and again, you know, who's asking the question is always really important. It can end up with a uh, almost prove to me that racism played a role in your in your life. And, uh, to be clear, I know that's not what you're asking, but that's what it can end up being like. Um, and you know, think about all the isms. Um, you know, it's not just around race. You know, if we think about um, you know sex, gender, um, age. You know, all of these different, um, you know, kind of parts of our, our identities. Sometimes, you know, you're in a conversation, it's like, oh, prove to me that it was race. And you kind of go, no, because the, the premise of the question is corrupt. Racism is a thing. And you either believe that or you don't. I'm not going to sit here and try to convince anybody that race has a role. We all have to come to that, that conclusion on our own. What was quite interesting, so again, we'll go back to kind of June 2020, and all these companies are coming out with kind of anti-racism statements, and one really stuck in my head, um, it was Warburton's, and Warburton's basically put out this tweet that said, we haven't put out an anti-racism statement because we're trying to figure out what that means for us as a company. I don't really expect a bread-making company to have a really great handle on anti-racism. I just don't, they make bread. But that's very different to organizations that work specifically in the mental health space, who are almost kind of coming up with the same argument. And it's like, no, no, you guys know. You guys know because I've sat around the table with you and I've told you and your team of executives specifically what's going on. Um, and you've looked at the data you're playing naive and that's not fair. So that question around, well, what role does race play? And I'm kind of answering a slightly different question to the one you posed, but what almost the, the, the tricky side, if you like, of the death of George Floyd and what that means for our healthcare systems is that it almost gave a pass to people that didn't deserve one because they were able to go, oh, well, now we get it. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, this is nothing new, and you know. And that then, when you have to think about it as a, on a personal level, that it's really, really difficult because you, you then always start to question yourself to kind of go, well, did racism play a role? I know it kind of did, it's kind of there, it's very ethereal, but actually, did it play a role? You know, can I come up with an example where someone was like, you know, we're doing this to you because you're black? Well, I've got a few examples like that, but actually that denies the fact that the majority of racism, the way it presents in the UK is not overt. It's no longer socially acceptable to do some of the things that were done to me as a child. When I was a kid, you know, 38 now, I, I would say I grew up with the back, you know, the back end of traditional racism. When it was still, you know, socially acceptable to call somebody a black, you know, insert the adjective. And it wasn't very nice. 
but you can kind of deal with it. And actually, you know, I almost, I almost, I almost find it easier to talk to someone who's a racist now. I'll walk up and I'll say, well, I don't think you should, be, I don't think you should live here and you should go back to where you came from because, you know, you're not English. And you kind of go, that's a really messed up thing to say to somebody. But you know what? That's almost easy for me to engage because you're not, you're being honest. And you're being honest with yourself. Part of the problem in this country is all these well-meaning good people that are like, well, I'm not racist. And it's like, no, but you are because you don't understand how racism presents. And racism is not calling somebody a bad word. Racism is not having, you know, separate toilets for people based on their skin color. That would be incredibly wrong. But actually, it is built in to our policies. It's built into our customs. By customs, I mean how we treat people, both the people that we work alongside, people we engage with in our day to day life and the people who we are serving, you know, as part of our job, be that we work in Tesco or we're a psychiatrist working in a hospital. And it's very, very difficult to explain to somebody the impact of microaggressions. It's very difficult to explain to somebody, well, you know, ever since I was a teenager, people crossed the street when they saw me coming. I'm not a particularly big guy, but I walk in a certain way, push my shoulders out, and partly because I didn't want to get mugged myself. Um, you know, when you walk into a shop and, and, you know, I've literally been asked to leave certain shops because I couldn't afford to shop in there. I actually did. <laughs> I actually stood in a shop once. No one came near. They all looked at me. And then... After stood there for about five, six minutes, I'm like, right, I'll go look at the shirts. This woman and her daughter walked in and staff were there within 20 seconds. Now people go, oh, but, but, but. And I'm going, if I have to explain to you that that is not an everyday occurrence, you don't get it. And it's not that you don't get it, it's that you are actively trying to not see it. And what you're saying is, I don't believe you. Now, you can either go, well, that's, you know, really silly example, that's you in a shop buying a shirt. Guess what? That happens every single day in all of our systems. That happens in the, the criminal justice system, that happens in our healthcare system, happens in education. You know, why is it that we've got, you know, six-year-old boys, boys, six-year-old boys, who are, you know, experiencing uh, and displaying the same behavioural issues as their white counterparts. One goes down the pastoral route, one goes down the disciplinary route. They're six years old. There is no such thing as a bad six-year-old, yet they are being treated as if they are. So that question of well, what's the role of racism in an individual's healthcare problem is, is really quite challenging. Um, and then you start to think, actually, our experience of healthcare, this is almost a real advancement of where we are, I think, as a, as a way, as a society of looking at healthcare. We're trying to treat healthcare as being an individual journey. We are changing on that with, you know, the view of kind of the life cycle. And it's, I think maternal healthcare is quite, you know, we know that we've got to protect the healthcare of the mother um, during pregnancy, you know, and afterwards, because we know that has an impact. We know that. But it's wider than that. You know, 
half my family are black. And on the black side of the family, there's a lot of mental illness, a lot of severe mental illness. And then you kind of go, what about looking at the families? And you start to look. And again, are there you know, families that are white where there's not the mental illness? Absolutely. But it's happening at a higher degree in certain communities. And you start to go, well, is it genetic or is it something around how they're experiencing the world? That has to play a huge role in that. And when we start to think about the way in which, you know, speaking quite broadly, what happens when you experience overt, covert, um, you know, personal, uh, systematic, institutional racism, however it's impacting you, what it starts to do is it starts to change you. It starts to mean that you are not free to be yourself. And I, I haven't seen the evidence yet on actually, not just what does that do in terms of, so we know about the weathering effect and we know that actually there's this dynamic where, you know, uh, a boy starts to kind of enter into his teens, starts to, you know, kind of develop more as a man physically. And the world, there's a point at which the world stops and stops seeing that person as a boy and starts seeing that, that person as a man. We know that happens earlier for black boys and girls. We've got, you know, some really horrific experiences that have, you know, um, you know, as a child cue and then what, what's gone on. We know that. We know there's the amplification of black children. What we're not thinking about there is the weathering effect is not just that that person gets on the bus and there's a reaction however subtle of the bus driver or in the shop or wherever it is is that that then causes a change in how that person interacts in the world and that's happening and then that means at some point that person's going to get pulled over by the police and everyone goes oh well you know just comply well do you know what you might statistically that might be the first time they've been pulled over, but it's not the first time they've experienced something like that. So actually, this idea of you know just comply, well, actually that that person has been experiencing the world as a black person who doesn't fit in, who isn't English or British. Let's call that what it is. That's what we're saying. Mm. At whatever level, that's impacting them. But what happens on a family level? when you've got gender thrown into that, misogyny, what then happens there? So there's all these different effects that are going on, which we don't really understand, that warrant research that says, actually, it's not just an individual experience. There's too big a jump to go from the individual to this, this phantom community. We know there's a family there whatever that looks like. We know there is, you know, direct siblings, parents, aunts, uncles. There is a unit there. But actually, what does that work look like that says, how is racism impacting and interacting with that group of people there? That would be a phenomenal piece of work. And I think it throws some real answers. I mean, thank you, Steve, for kind of for, for drawing all of that out because there are so many facets to that and it's definitely something that we're doing a lot of work on both in terms of our research but also our own anti-racism approach and, and within our organisation and 
I mean, there's so much there, but just, you know, when you were talking about the weathering effect, I instantly thought of our recent work um, with the Shift in the Dial programme with young black men in Birmingham and, um, and, and that way of, yeah, that, that weathering, eroding effect over time in this way that you can't necessarily, as you say, it's not necessarily like a tangible, ah, oh, this thing um, really damaged my mental health. It's a very, it's a slow, gradual wearing down of someone's own self-esteem and confidence and belief that they can do certain things and achieve certain things um, from you know, a multi-systemic approach in terms of kind of education, criminal justice, healthcare, we're seeing that. And, and it's really interesting what you said about often racism in this country now not being tangible. And obviously we're very glad things aren't overt, but at the same time, as you say, it means that it's, it's, it's less easy to identify one thing in particular it's, it's more about, as you say, that kind of gradual um, weathering and that institutionalization of racism that stops people from actually just having the same opportunities for good mental health. Um, so, I mean, on that, that kind of leads us on to talking, I guess, about um, the Mental Health Act review, which you've already mentioned. So obviously you were the vice chair for the independent review that was led by Sir Simon Wesley, and the review was published in 2018. And, and thankfully, the draft bill is now been published um, so it's making its way slowly through the legislative pipeline but I guess I'd love to know a bit more about about I guess why you wanted to get involved in that work and and why you believe that the reform of the act was so necessary yeah it's a good it's a good question I think the mental health act you know I was detained in um, 2010 so I had a, you know a relatively short period of time um, I was in 28, 21 days and my friend basically got me out as quickly as she could. Um, so she could look, at me at, look after me at home under the care of a community um, mental um, health team. Multiple family members have been detained under the Act for large periods of time um, on multiple occasions. And, and so that's all part of that familial um, you know, impact like my dad was section when I was three. Um, he thought to me, what was it as a three-year-old that I'm not, I can't remember, but it's definitely impacted me. Um, what, what's that collective experience as a family? Um, so it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a real no-brainer to, to be part of it. And I, and I think, you know, in terms of reform, um, you know, again, when we kind of pan out, pan out from just, um, you know, think about race, you know, we have this huge, huge increase in the number of people that we've taken over a 10 year period of time. You're going, you know, you've got, you know, back in 2018, roughly 80,000 80, people being detained. And you kind of go, well, that's a lot of people. And it's really expensive. Surely there is a way to do something different. I think reform rather than abolishment um, is always the most pragmatic. I know that there are people that strongly disagree with me on that and, and you know I can see where they're coming from I, I you know I, I disagree I think even if we have the best mental health care social care criminal justice everything in the world you know you are always going to have a you know even if it's 10 percent of people that are coming to town who would need that provision um and as Simon reminds us all the time if you go to a country that either doesn't have a mental health act or has one that has serious flaws in it 
you do not want to be ventilating well in that, in that, that country. Um, I think the opportunity um, to be part of a change process like that was, I think it was a, a real watershed moment for the experience in this interesting week, you know, we were talking about that earlier. And, you know, part of, part of my role was to, um, in, you know, to, to support the review as a whole. Um, secondly, to uh, co-lead the work around Black African Caribbean communities in particular. Um, and, you know, of equal value was um, to lead uh, a group of people with lived experience. Um, and we had a phenomenal group of, of 12 individuals who all wanted reform of the act all had very different experiences. Some people were coming from a purely kind of carer perspective. Some people had been detained and some people had both experiences. And that was, you know, this really rich, diverse range of experiences. Um, the knowledge that was in that group, the understanding that was in that group was phenomenal. Um, so I'm glad that I was able to, 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 to lead that, that group in particular. Um, Everyone that was involved, to whatever degree, put everything in. Um, I will defend that till the day I die. You know, we could not have done more. Physically, could not have done more. Um, I just really hope that you know our collective effort is realised because you know it, it it wasn't a perfect process. Um, but things have to be dramatically different. And this moves us in the right direction. It really does. Um, the things that are in that draft bill, if we can get them into law, it will save lives. There's no doubt about it. Oh, thank you so much, Steve, for, for kind of talking us through that. It's really helpful to um, both understand a bit more about the process, but also just to kind of understand where we are now. And, and obviously, we at the centre are kind of watching its progress through um through the various parliamentary systems and we'll be keeping a really close eye on that but I mean I guess um yeah just thank you for everything you did on it as well because I mean we, we just had to have um that both that lived experience perspective but also your own unique perspective I know has added so much um depth and absolute yeah it was a necessity um so yeah and before we wrap up I guess I just wanted to ask you I do try and ask guests um how how they manage their own mental health so i guess yeah are there certain things that you do to try to uh kind of keep an equilibrium and to stay well yeah it's a really how do i uh, how do a I big question i know no it's a good it's a good question it, it's it's one that it depends on the day of the week some days it's it's a lot easier um there's there's there's, there's always a foundation um three different medications or so take one in the morning and two of them at night so again making sure i have those making sure i eat fairly sensibly um drink lots of water don't drink too much caffeine trying to be a little bit active um on the on those days it's still difficult because of the side effects of the medication the biggest one being fatigue um so that's always a real challenge. Um, so the main thing that I need to manage is my energy levels. That is more difficult when, it's not even when I'm like massively unwell, um, but like 
last week I was doing some stuff in the garden and I basically pushed myself too hard. And then it's just like a week of recovery at least. And it's really frustrating because I enjoy being active. When when you feel like you've got some energy, it's kind of really, it's really difficult to go, you've got to hold something back. Because I don't want to, you know, and, and you know, I was always active as a kid and was so much hard to let go. Um, you know, I see people, it, not even just like running marathons, like going hill walking and stuff like that. I really struggle. I can walk on the flat, but whatever's going on inside, whether it's the illness itself or it's a side of the medication, um, there's just this like almost like drop off that's so severe. Um, so I'd argue that actually one of the main things I have to manage is my expectations, which is really tricky when you've already kind of given up on so much, you know. But it's good, I, you know, I'm very blessed and very blessed and, and um, things can be incredibly difficult and, and but I've got amazing people around me and, and you know, I count the centre and, you know, the people that work there kind of in that extended network of, of you, know, this, this, you know, this is cathartic to be able to talk about, but it's also, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure of people to reach out to and I know there are people that, that don't have that and I guess that's one of the big things that drives me is I know what it was like back when I didn't know where to go for help and unfortunately that's still the case today um so you know however difficult things get for me I know that you know that's not me denying the reality that I live with but there are people you know in the roads nearby where I live and all the way to you know North parts of Scotland and down to Cornwall across the world that really need us to demand better. Um, and, and I guess that's what, what, what drives so many of us. Um, but yeah, thank you for asking. Oh, Steve, thank you so much for, for yeah, being honest about that, but also just for giving up your time today. It's been, it's been fantastic to chat to you. Yeah, thanks so much. You're welcome. <laughs> we really hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the fight for equality in mental health, please support our work at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time.